Well, good morning. It's, uh, it's good to be back with you all again. And uh, this morning, I'd like to do something different than we normally do, uh, usually, and as it should be. Uh, preaching is kind of like mining, where you go down into the mine of Scripture and come up with gems and clean and cut them and, and lay them out on Sunday morning. Uh, but the last few weeks, I've been working through a series on First Thessalonians, and uh, it's been a wonderful and a challenging series. And, and so what I want to do this morning is just scoop up what the Lord's been teaching me and lay it out before you in the hope that it will be uh, as much of a blessing to you as it has been to me. I wanted to do this in one morning, um, but as I was working through it and preparing, it's, well, I mean, unless you want to be here for two hours, it's going to be two sermons, so. Um, but one of the lessons, the primary lesson working through this book is what does love require? What, what does it actually mean to really mean to love? You know, what, what is the Bible talking about when it encourages us and commands us over and over again to love? I mean, it seems so simple at first, doesn't it? And, and we tend to take for granted, you know, I, of course, love, I know what that means. But then when you start to probe the depths of it, you realize, I'm never going to be able to come to the end of this thing. And then when you think you're getting close to the end of it, you realize you've only just started out. It's like climbing a, a mountain and you think you get to the mountaintop and, and you've arrived and when you get there you realize there's a whole range yet to be explored. You think you have a grasp on what it means to love, and then you learn you've still got a long way to go. I, uh, I know a number of years ago, I, I was compelled to preach through a series on 1 Corinthians 13. And going into it, I thought, well, this will be great. This will be an encouragement. Everyone will be happy. You know, who doesn't like sermons on love? And to this day, it was one of the most challenging series I've worked through for me and for the congregation, for those who, who remember it. And the reason it was so challenging is because I thought I understood what it meant. I walked into it thinking, you know, this will be a, this will be a trip through Easy Street. And then very quickly I discovered I had no idea what 1 Corinthians was asking me to do. It was like, um, well, how many of you have read The Voyage of the Dawn Treader? Okay, a couple of people have read it. Well, I, I just finished reading it with the kids. And in one chapter, a chapter called The Dark Island, they come to an island, and when they, when they come to the island, it's all dark, and they're sailing into the darkness. They, you know, we're brave. How can we turn around because, uh, because it's, it's dark? It's like being afraid of the night. We're not afraid of the dark, and they sail in. And when they're coming near to the island, a man approaches them, and he's, he's crying, and he's screaming, and they see him, and he's terrified. He's insane with fear. He's wild with terror. And so they, they pull him into the boat, and he's, he's almost hysterical. He's telling them, Look, if you're not going to turn around, if you're not going to take me out of this place, then just kill me. He's saying, you need to get out of here as fast as you can. And they ask him, why are you so afraid? What has, what has made you so disfigured with fear? And he answers, this is the place where all your dreams come true. And the crew is surprised. They're, they're taken back. How can you be afraid? 
And it's a wonderful thing. I've been looking for this kind of place my entire life. And can you imagine all of our dreams come true? And then the man starts to scream and he stomps his feet and he yells, Fools, you don't understand. This is the place where all your dreams come true. And after a few seconds of silence, they rush to the oars and to the rudder and they turn around and row with all of their might to escape the cursed place. And the point is, they thought that they understood something. They thought they knew what it meant to be in a place where all their dreams came true and it brought them great cheerfulness and, and even eagerness to go on. But when they discovered the reality, when they realized what it meant, how they thought about it changed completely. And when it comes to love, biblical love, we think we know what it means. But everything changes when we discover the reality of what love looks like and what it requires. Now we're going to be in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, but we're going to start in John 12, 25 and, and look quickly at Luke 9, 23 and 24 because, because those two verses, what are in those two verses are foundational to true love. Without, without dealing with these two things, the love the Bible calls us to express, it cannot exist. Because that's the very first thing that this kind of love requires is dying to self. And when you think of love, is that the first thing that comes into your mind? If I want to love, I have to die to myself. John 12, 25, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Luke 9, 23, and he said to all, if anyone, this is Jesus speaking to the crowd, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Well, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, you speak many difficult words to your people. But Lord, they are for our everlasting good. Lord, we are so disoriented in how we think about everything that, Lord, the words that would lead us to life, we look at them as if, not again, or like they're a weight or a burden. Lord, they're not a burden, and you know that, and that's why you tell them to us. Lord, your burden is easy and your yoke is light. And when we follow you according, Lord, to how you've called us to follow you, we begin to find that what you said is true. It is not a weight on our backs to walk with you. But Lord, as we walk in the world and go in the way of the world and are tempted that direction, Lord, it heaps heaviness upon us. And I pray this morning that you would, you would cut burdens off, even from your own people, from believers, that they would with more fullness and freedom and joy run after you 
Lord, that the greatest command would be done, that we would love you and that we would love one another. It cannot be done apart from grace. It cannot be done apart from dying to ourselves. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see that this morning so that our joy would be complete. Lord, give us humble hearts, all of us, to receive your word. I pray for wisdom in preaching it. And I pray that your presence would be manifest among us, Lord, for the good of your name, for the glory of your name, the good of your people. And so we lift our time this morning to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning, like I said, I want to speak about selfless love, that, that kind of love that the Bible speaks of and that the Lord God demonstrates and the kind that we are called to show even to lavish abundantly on others. But before we can speak about that, something preliminary has to happen. You know, there's a, there's a, a wall built around this kind of love, and it prevents anyone from, from getting to it, and before that can be achieved, the wall has to come down. And before anyone can self, uh, love selflessly, they have to break down the wall of love for self. You have to die to self. And so I'm, I'm going to begin being as simple and straightforward as I can. Selfless love and love for self are two poles that are diametrically opposed to one another. You cannot do both. You cannot love others selflessly and at the same time love yourself. In Matthew 6, Jesus warns that you cannot serve two masters, for either you will hate one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. And of course, there in Matthew 6, he is talking about uh, wealth and God. You cannot serve both God and money. But the principle remains true. You cannot still serve two masters, whoever those masters are. And this is even more obvious when those masters' interests are opposed to each other. Well, the same thing is true here about love. You have one master telling you to love yourself and another, the Lord God, telling you to deny yourself and die to yourself and even hate your life. And if you are a Christian, you have to decide which one are you going to serve. Because it cannot be both. You cannot love yourself while at the same time lovingly, selflessly giving yourself away sacrificially to others. They are two incompatible positions. And to the degree you increase in one, you will decrease in the other. We have to make up our minds. Who will we serve? It's not just love for one another that demands death to self. It's actually one of the requirements of the Christian life. And there is a sense where in Christianity, nothing can be accomplished without first dealing with the self. In fact, unless you lay your life down on the altar, you cannot even be a Christian. I know people hear that and they'll think, well, what are you talking about? You know, justification by faith alone. Yes, I understand that and I wholeheartedly agree. But in Luke 9, 23, what we just read... Jesus says that in order to be a disciple, you must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Him. And do it every day 
And if you don't do that, you cannot be a disciple. Now, at the very least, that means saving faith produces the immediate effect of some degree of death to self. And that verse, it, it doesn't mean, as you, you sometimes hear, to carry a burden. Sometimes people talk that way. Well, I, I have my, this is my cross to bear. That's not what it means. It means you have to die to yourself. I mean, the cross was an instrument of execution. The cross was, was something that you were put to death on. Nobody in the ancient world, they would have misunderstood what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is telling anyone who would follow him, you know, if you want to be his disciple, you have to die every day. It would be no different if he said, anyone who wants to be my disciple, let him deny himself, sit in the electric chair, and be executed like I'm about to be executed. You understand, that's what he's saying here. You say, well, that's a little hard to understand. I mean, the message is clear, you have to die, but how? Literally? Is he talking about physical death? What's required here? Well, thankfully, the Apostle Paul knew what it meant, and by the Spirit, he makes it clear in multiple scriptures, verses, as in Galatians, when he writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You say, I don't know how much clearer that makes it. What he means is, I'm not living for Paul anymore. You know, 1 Corinthians 15, 31, I die every day. Paul is not living for Paul. As Paul regards himself, he is dead every day. But as he regards Christ, he lives. Paul isn't the master anymore. Paul's will, his hopes, his ambitions, his desires, his defense, all of it he has laid on the altar of sacrifice so that he could live for another, for Christ. And the scriptures say this over and over again. We are called to die to ourselves. And maybe the most offensive statement of this, at least to our modern ears, is Luke 14, 29. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, of course, we, we know here that hate is being used in a comparative sense. We're not to hate our father and mother and children. We're to love them. As Christians, we ought to love them better and love them more. But comparatively speaking, compared to Christ, our love for Him is so much greater. We could be accused of hatred. To one example of that, Pilgrim's Progress, a Christian hears the call of evangelist and he, he wants to be free from the burden on his back and to do so he's told go to the wicked gate and be free from the burden of sin on your back go to the celestial city start out that way and so he, he starts out on the journey but when he begins his wife and his children are are crying after him to stay you remember what he does they're imploring him they're begging him he puts his hands over his ears and he runs the direction of that city cries out Life, life, eternal life. I mean, someone could look at that and say, wow, he really hates his family. Or they could look at that and say, wow, he really must love Christ. It's one of the most difficult decisions a Christian has to make when it's a decision between their family and the Lord. And, and following the Lord means they've got to turn their back on their family in certain things for the sake of Christ. 
I don't think I don't think a Christian ever has to face a more difficult decision than that. But it does happen. Christ calls us to that. But this verse doesn't just talk about family. The believer is also called to hate his own life so that when people look at the decisions that he makes, that she makes, decisions they make for Jesus, there is a sense where the world should see that and say they must really hate their life to put themselves through this. Whoever hates his life will save it. Whoever does not hate his own life cannot be my disciple. Deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow me. All over the scripture. I don't want to dwell on this much longer, but whatever all of those passages mean, they certainly don't mean love yourself more. Sometimes you hear Christians contest this. They'll say something like, well, in order to love others as myself, I first have to learn to love myself better than I do. Maybe you've heard that before. Absolutely not. Just no. It's the total opposite. The greatest hindrance to loving others for you is your own love for self. And if the Bible is clear about anything, it's that we already love ourselves way too much. I mean, it gets in the way, doesn't it? How often has your own selfishness got in the way of you carrying out what God has called you to do? All the time. And if you really want to love others, it begins with less love for self. And listen, that doesn't look like uh, uh, some kind of morbid melancholy that, that misses the point. I think most people know that, but it comes up. You, you mean I have to hate everything about me and just beat myself up? Every no, that's not what it means, and you know that's not what it means. It means stop thinking about you. Don't think about yourself at all. Dead to self. If you're dead to self, how much does a corpse think about himself? Zero. He doesn't even know he's there. You know, you could drag him from one graveyard to the other. Who cares? He doesn't. He's dead. And that's how we're to be to ourselves. Dead. Dead to our own plans. Dead to our own ambitions. Dead to our own praise. But not dead to everything. We are alive to Christ and to others. That manifests itself. You say, well, how does that show itself in our lives? As love. Love is the overflow of living for Christ and selfishness is one of, if not the greatest, enemies of love. And if you ever want to love the way the Scriptures call you to, self must be slain first. I mean, it goes without saying that you know, we hear it all the time, but the, the world hates this message. Love as defined by the world is in total opposition to biblical love. I mean, the world's versions, especially today, they are fiercely opposed to dying to self. And it demands self-exaltation and self-love holds that up as the supreme virtue apart from which you can do nothing. I mean, how many of you hear this kind of messaging from the world all the time? And so it's no surprise then that there is, there is no compatibility with the love of the world and the love of God. I mean, what fellowship does light have with darkness? And if you think this isn't true... Just pick up a book on self-care or self-esteem or 
or caring for self. Read, read through the, just read through the, the table of contents and compare the advice of this book to the scriptures. The two could not be further apart. We're told the way to be happy and joyful is to practice self-love. Don't enter into situations that don't honor you. Don't exhaust energy in relationships that are unfulfilling. Cut off demanding people. Put yourself first. Make time for you. On and on and on. There are books and seminars endlessly being churned out telling people the biggest problem in their lives is that they don't know how to love themselves. And it's a lie. It destroys people. It's like telling someone who's been poisoned the cure to your poison is more poison. And it robs people of joy and it kills real love. I don't know how anyone can have even a cursory, a, a basic understanding of Scripture and believe what the world teaches about love. Yet it happens. Christians are unthinkingly swayed and, and somehow, sometimes, buy into this. I mean, there are people who are they're godly in their behavior. They walk carefully regarding sin. Maybe they order their homes well, and yet, in their thinking, worldliness creeps in. And when they think of love, they think of it in a worldly way. If I want to be happy, I've got to love myself. All my problems are because of my self-perception. I need to accept myself. It's just self, self, self. That's not how Christ was. And it's not what we're called to as Christians. We're told to consider others as better than ourselves. To lay down our lives for others to deny ourselves, crucify the flesh along with its desires, these do not fit together with the reigning mantras of our age. And we ought to be thankful for that, shouldn't we? Because what has the so-called love of this age produced? It's one of the most selfish, hateful, cruel, brutal, backward generations the world has ever seen. It's lovelessness breeding more lovelessness. That's all that love for self can do. I mean, look at the fruit that it's been producing. It's rotten to the core. And if you want a, an example of the destructive power of self-centered love, just look around you. It's like a magnifying glass under the sun, right? You focus on yourself, and you focus on yourself and, until the dot gets brighter and brighter and hotter and hotter, and then you burst into flames. It's not, like, it's, it's, it's not to be like that in the church. We're not to be a, a group of people focused on ourselves, and then once, once we've exhausted ourselves with ourselves, this project of the self, then we, can, then we can start to turn around and give to others. No, in the church we're called to selfless, self-sacrificing love. And we're going to look at a passage that might surprise you. It, it's not one that immediately comes to mind when you think of love but you actually find this love exemplified by the Apostle in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, 6 through 10. And like I said, this is part one of what will be a two-part message. And the only reason I say that is I, I don't want to get to the end of this and everybody say, well, what about this and what about this and how do I do it? We'll get there, I promise. 1 Thessalonians 3, chapter, uh, 3, verse 6. But now that Timothy has come from us, or to us from you, and has brought us the good news of your faith and love, and reported that you are always, uh, that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, 
For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live, if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly, night and day, that we may see your face and supply what is lacking in your faith. This is written by Paul to the Thessalonian believers. And on the first read, it, it seems quite insignificant. It's just standard early church stuff, right? They, they want to see each other. They're thankful for what God's doing. They're enduring difficulty. And it doesn't immediately strike us how important this passage really is. But it's not because there isn't anything in there. And when you slow down and spend some time reading and rereading it, you start to see what selfless love actually looks like. And, and listen, I just want to make this clear. This is, this is not elite-level Christianity, as if there ever could be such a thing as that. This is Christianity 101. We are called, all of us, to die to ourselves so that we might live for and love others. That's a defining characteristic of the Christian life. Love your neighbor as yourself. And, and no, we don't always do this 100%. Not even the most mature Christian does it 100%. But we are all called to it in measure and to grow in it to maturity. And I'm worried many of us have really no idea what loving like this even means, let alone looks like. And part of the reason might be dullness of heart, but even more than that, you know, we live in an age that knows nothing of this caliber of love. A few weeks ago, uh, when I was preaching on the fruit of the Spirit as marks of grace, some people came up to me afterward and they, they asked me about well, someone they knew who though they seemed to exemplify patience and, and joy or, or other characteristics listed there. And they said, well, what about them? How can, how can this be a mark of grace that is only possible in those indwelled by the Spirit and yet I see it in people who I know are lost? Well, there is some truth to that. There, there are people with a more joyful or more patient or even loving temperament. They're just naturally, compared to others, that's just the way they are. And we, when we define love in a, in a limited human way, yes, we can say there are unbelievers who love. But that's not what we're talking about. The kind of love envisioned here does not come naturally to anyone. It's so far above and beyond it. It's supernatural because it is the love of Christ and we aren't called as Christians to love like those around us just better and more consistently we are called to a different level a different quality of love to love like Christ has loved us that's the kind of love on display in this passage and the first way it shows itself is joy what do verses 6 and 7 say Paul is in great distress and affliction. He was suffering tremendously. And what brought him comfort and joy was a report that the Thessalonian church was doing really well. I mean, these aren't, these aren't just platitudes. He's not just saying things. He means it. He is full of joy, not because things are going well for him. Things are not going well for him. But he is full of joy because of what God is doing in others. 
I mean, have you ever been in a situation where you were miserable and it just seemed like everything was going wrong, really bad day, bad trial over it all, and then you hear some really good news about a brother or sister in Christ? Do you know what we do? We dismiss it, don't we? Well, good for them. Or, well, what about me? Or, well, who cares right now? I can't deal with it. Maybe you don't respond like that. But does the good news about what's going on in the life of your brother or sister in Christ, does it alleviate the affliction of the trial? You ever heard of a fellow believer being blessed? They're delivered from a trial, their prayers have been answered, and it lifted you out of your misery and filled your heart with comfort and joy? That right there is a good indicator of whether your love is selfless or not. Do you have more joy when good things happen to you or to your neighbor? It's the opposite of the world's message. Who cares about others? Look out for number one and you'll be happy. It's not true. And it has no place in the Christian life. It's dying to self for the sake of love that will increase your joy. And it really will increase it. And I have to say that because it seems outrageous, right? How will dying to myself increase my joy? I just kinda, that just kind of puts me in mind of maybe you know, the Spartan thing to do, the duty to do, and I'm going to, to die to myself and, and, and live for others, and I'm going to be miserable the whole time because there's no joy in dying to self, but I'll do it because I'm going to follow Christ. That's completely wrong. If you can take joy in others and take joy in them over and above yourself, Then what happens if you're having a rough time, but five others whom you love this way are doing well? If you love them more than yourself, then their joy becomes your joy. And instead of only being able to be joyful about something good happening to you, one person, joy is multiplied to you by a factor of five. Because now you're as joyful for each one of them as you would be for yourself. Do you see what, what, what it means when Christ says joy and peace be multiplied unto you. It's this dying to self kind of love that multiplies joy. And I, I think you know this. A mean, stingy, self-centered heart. They don't have the capacity for joy, do they? I mean, no. how, how many self-centered people do you know who are miserable? People who, they only care about themselves. Are they happy at all? And yourself, just think, how many times have you done what you thought would make you happy, selfishly, and it just all turned to rot? I mean, how often have you been selfish at the expense of others, and it ruined your relationship? It made life unbearable. When has being self-serving left your heart full and bursting? It leaves your heart shriveled. You know this by experience. And because Jesus wants us to be joyful, he tells us what true and lasting joy requires. He wants us to be this way, and so he tells it how how it's done. As I have loved you, love one another. It's for your own good to love like this. And to the degree you increase in selfless love, your capacity for joy will grow exponentially. And you'll just stop worrying about you, and you'll be more concerned for your neighbor. Be more concerned for the person sitting next to you and across from you. You'll be concerned for the person who might be sick and and is not here, and you want to make sure they're doing well. 
you see others in the church and they're growing and they're maturing in the faith and, and they're, they're being blessed. And it fills you with joy because it's not about you anymore. It's about them. Just when was the last time you were overjoyed because of something God has done in you? And then when were you ever more joyful because God did something similar in another brother or sister in Christ? Has that ever happened? Parents sometimes feel this way for their children. You know, parents will suffer a great deal or even burden themselves with burdens they didn't need to carry, but they'll do it for the sake of their kids. And, and when they hear, they see that their children are doing well, you know, their sacrifice paid off, they rejoice and they say, well, I would do it all over again. They love their children, don't they? And they would give anything for their children. They would die for their children. They lay themselves down for their children just for the joy of knowing that they're doing good and they're okay. Well, do you realize that the kind of love we are called to, to have for one another, exceeds this? Or at the very least, it's to match it? I mean, Paul has this attitude for the church. Earlier in chapter 2, he says, I was like a nursing mother among you. You ever seen a nursing mother with her children, gentle, kind, loving, sacrificially giving of herself? Or when the Apostle John calls the Christians, my little children, well, he's not just speaking for effect. He really loves them this way. And we should too. Every brother and sister in Christ is your family. Doesn't Jesus speak this way? Do you remember when they come to him and say, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are looking for you? He says, these who hear and Obey my father, are my mother and my sister and my brothers. Hebrews 12, 2 says, For the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross. He is our example as well. You say, what joy? What joy could there possibly be in an excruciating death under the curse and wrath of God, dying on the cross after having been scourged and mistreated and falsely accused and then sentenced to execution unjustly. What joy can there be in that? When was the last time you ever suffered injustice joyfully for the sake of somebody else? Because in this there's no joy for Christ, is there? So where's the joy coming from? He's not going to have a pleasant, joyful experience, I can tell you that. Where is his joy coming from? What does Hebrews 12:2 mean? The joy that Christ is speaking of, that Hebrews is speaking of, and that Christ had, is born out of a self-sacrificing love for his people. And so he can look at the cross with a sense of joy, not because of what will happen to him, but because he knows it will save and reconcile a people who he loves. And for them, he is willing to joyfully endure. Such a terror. Death to self, joy and love. And I pray that we would grow enough in Christ to be able to say the same. I, I pray that we would stop loving ourselves and start laying our lives down. Now that takes time and that takes effort and it's letting your schedule be interrupted for others and not doing it begrudgingly but genuinely out of love. 
dying to self to live for others. Selfless love is the way to multiply our joy. And the next thing you see in this passage, probably one of the most important things in the entire Christian life, it's thanksgiving. How many times are we told in the New Testament to be thankful? I mean, it's a lot. And selfless love results in thanksgiving to God for others. Now, this, this is not thankfulness for others. There is some of that in here, and we are thankful for others, but it's thankfulness to God for others. You know, I was talking uh, with someone about this last week. You know, as Christians, we want to be thankful f- for other people. We do. But there, there's almost a sense of, well, but isn't that boasting? You know, isn't that fostering pride? And, and maybe you think, well, maybe I shouldn't, shouldn't praise others. No, you can and you, you should. It's one of the ways we encourage one another. It's all right to tell your kids they're good kids. You know, sometimes we, we get confused about this. You know, you'll, you'll hear someone say, oh, they're good kids, and then you catch yourself and go, no, 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 no one's good but God. Oh, yes, that's true, but I'm pretty sure the parent didn't mean my child is perfect and blameless and, uh, without flaw. I mean, of all people, the parent knows this. Or I remember one time I was out somewhere, and, uh, and Dave Story was there, and one of my boys was, was helping out uh, with serving something. He was just doing it joyfully. And Dave looked at me and he said, you know, he's a good kid. And I started to debate that in my mind. <laughs> and he looked at me more seriously and said it again. He's a good kid. Sometimes as parents, you know, we have to discipline them. And we're dealing with these things. We just don't see it. But the Lord is working good in him. It's all right to be thankful and give thanks for others. You just need to do it in the right way and, and direct it in the right direction. We're taught how to do this in Scripture. Did you know that there's a right way to give thanks? We just think, wow, we just give thanks. No, there's a right way to give thanks. Over and over in the Bible, Paul and the apostles, they're always giving thanks for people. But have you ever noticed how they do it? They're thanking God for what He is doing in them. It's in almost every letter. We thank God for what He has done in you. You see those things that bring you joy? The steadfastness and good example and growth in godliness in other believers? Who's doing that? Who is causing the increase? Well, the believer isn't causing it. The person isn't causing it. And any good in you, it hasn't grown out of you. The scriptures say, in us is no good thing. And so this means that any growth, any advancement, any patience or kindness or or growing as a godly parent or as a godly spouse, all of it comes from God. And so we ought to be thankful, but we ought to be thankful in the right way. And so when you see people growing and doing well, when you see uh, even this kind of love in yourself that rejoices more in others than than in you, and and you see that start to grow, when you see that, recognize where it comes from. You know, if you think it's because of a good Bible reading plan or I'm in a good church or, or an effective sermon or anything like that, that's the edge of idolatry. Even if those are the things that God is using to bring about the kind of life-changing, dying-to-self-love. God is doing it. And so when you see it, you see it happening in the church, in your family, in yourself, anywhere, just put up your hands and say, thank you, God. So it's happening here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 9. Thanksgiving to God for the Thessalonians. Paul is thankful for the joy he has because of what God has done in them. And so it's thankfulness to God. But look, it's not because of what God did for Paul. 
is thankfulness for what He did in somebody else, in others. It is the thankfulness that results from selfless love, and it's the kind of thankfulness that ought to permeate the life of the godly. Selfless thanksgiving for what God is doing in us and around us and especially in others. You see this again in Colossians 3.17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. I mean, think about that. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Giving thanks to God the Father through Him. You know that in everything in your life, everything you experience, there are reasons to give thanks. And just like with joy, to the degree that you are more concerned for others and more trusting in God, your capacity for thanksgiving will increase. I mean, when you're self-centered and your thoughts are only about you, you can only be thankful when good things happen to one person, you. And your thankfulness is very limited. But when you love others better than yourselves, you have hundreds of people you can now give thanks to God for. And every one of them, for every one of them, you can be as thankful as if God had done for you what He's done for them. You see how this enlarges your heart? You see how thankfulness to God for what He is doing in others increases your ability to be thankful and joyful? And you see why God commands this? He does command it. Be thankful. Why does He command us to be thankful? Do you think it's because of His ego and a selfish desire to be thanked all the time? I mean, you know Him. If you know Him, you know better. He tells us to be thankful always because that is the kind of attitude that increases our capacity for joy and for courage and for every good thing. When you see what God has done, when you see what He is doing, when you see what He will do, it creates in you, thank you, God. You know, thank you that I'm here. Thank you for what you're doing in me. Thank you what, for what you've protected me from. Thank you for where I'm going to go. Thank you for the air that I breathe and the promises that you've made. Thank you, Lord. We always have something to be thankful for. And thanksgiving is how we give glory to God. And God must receive the glory. Again, like I said, steadfastness among the faithful and growth. It's not because they're in a good church or hear good preaching or anything like that. If they are growing in any of those things, it is God who is using the preaching, or God who is using the church, or God who is answering their prayers to grow them. He does it all. It's all from Him. And that's why you have a verse like uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.16. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the Spirit, do not despise prophecy. God's will for you is to be thankful in all things. So if you ever wonder what God's will is for your life, there's a part of it. Give thanks in every circumstance. God doesn't uh, give these commands idly either. He expects them to be obeyed. They're not just good recommendations, they're truths. So every situation that you're in, realize God is at work, and because God is at work, you have reasons to be thankful. It's just a matter of whether you can see them or not, but they are there. And after this, well, you see where there's a, a sense where thanklessness and joylessness and prayerlessness grieve the Spirit of God. So how do they do that? Well, have you ever given a gift to somebody and you knew they would enjoy it, but they just couldn't be bothered to figure it out? You know, maybe it's at Christmas time and you get some electronic or, or something that you knew. It'd make mom or dad or grandmom or granddad's life. It'd make it so much easier. 
but they just kind of look at it and grumble, oh, thank you, the kind of thank you that lets you know it's going to live the rest of its life in the bottom of a closet. It's never going to see the light of day again. Well, what happens when that happens? You're a little bit grieved, aren't you? But not because they didn't appreciate your gift, but because you love them and you're grieved. I, you know this would make things better for you, make things easier for you. And you've, you've left that blessing on the table. And you're grieved because you love them and you want the best for them and you've just watched them forfeit something you know would help them. Well, the Spirit is the same. He wants people, His people, to be joyful and thankful and blessed. And when we grumble and we don't pray and are jealous instead of thankful, He is grieved and He is quenched because He, he knows. I mean, we don't often see it, but He knows we have left our joy on the table. We'll come back and we'll finish this passage next week, Lord willing. But I want to speak to those here this morning who have no joy. If you're in the church, you'd say, I'm a Christian, but joy just seems so far from me. Is the reason because you are too invested in yourself? And maybe you bought into the lie of the world and become worldly in your thinking and it's robbed you of joy. There's an answer dying to self so that you can love and serve and give yourself away for others. And look, you don't have to be a Christian for 10 years to be able to do that. You could start now. Just make up your mind. There, there is a sense where believers have to decide and choose this day who you will serve. Love God and love others more than you love yourself, and you're thinking, oh man, that's going to mean this and this and that. Yes, it is going to mean this and this and that, and it's going to be the best decision you ever made. It's going to fill your heart with joy if you're in Christ. Or maybe, maybe you've never known anything except some worldly perversion of love. You, you don't know what this looks like at all. I, I was talking with a friend once, and he told me in evangelism, he asked a, a teenager what love was, and the teenager said, well, I love my girlfriend, and that means I give her things she wants and she loves me and that means she gives me things I want. And that's love. And when he heard about loving unconditionally, when he heard about the kind of love the Bible talks about, he just, he just shook his head. He said, no, that doesn't even exist. He said, it's not real. But it is real. And it's found in one person, Jesus Christ. And if you want to love like this, to know love like this, not just to give it, but to receive it. You must deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow Him. And He will challenge everything you think about yourself and about Him and about life. And He will set you on a path at odds with the world. There's a, there's a cost to be counted here. And you will have trouble. And in spite of it all, joy unspeakable and unexplainable as you learn, maybe for the first time, what it means to be loved and what love really requires. So if you're here this morning and you say, I don't, I don't know what that is, turn to Christ in repentance and faith. Come to Him and find out what it means to be loved and to love. Well, let's pray. Lord, thank You for this morning and thank You for Your Word. What a word. What a love. What wondrous love is this, God.
I pray for all of us here this morning that this would be a day where our joy has been increased. Lord, we're like like a hot air balloon laden with sandbags and floating only a foot off of the ground, Lord. Cut those things off so that we can soar. Lord, there has to be more to the Christian life than this. I mean, we we read in the Scriptures and we see these things, and and I know I myself, I think, how, how little have I attained? How much more is there to be, to be had? More Christ-likeness, more courage. How much better a father and a husband can I be? How much better a pastor can I be? How much more love and joy and thankfulness can I have in others? Lord, there's more than we have had. And I pray, Lord, that you would increase, enlarge the hearts of your people. That they would run after you in such a way to win the prize, Lord, because there is a glorious prize to be won. Help us, God, by faith to see the reality of all of this, Lord. It is where we will spend eternity, and it is worth seeking out with all our strength and might today. Help us, Lord, to die to self that we might live for you and others. And I pray for anyone here who does not know you, Lord, give them the grace to come. Let them see, Lord, your beauty and the wonder of your ways. Draw them to your Son, Jesus Christ, that they might be forgiven of their lovelessness and their sins and their worldliness and know eternal life in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.